0: Hey, hi, hello, y'all. This is RB and welcome back. I am still riding off of a three-week conference high and recovering from a bit of post-conference sickness. Please get your flu shots, y'all. The beginning of this month, October 8th through 10th, the Institute team all headed to Madison, Wisconsin for the 2021 Midwest Bisexual, Lesbian, Gay, Transgender, Asexual College Conference, or mumble tech for the necessary short. This is the 29th time this conference has taken place, but it's the first time the conference has taken place during, knowingly, a global pandemic. And I wanna take a huge shout out to the UW-Madison faculty, staff, Um, and alumnex who made this conference possible and made it as safe as possible for 500 Midwest queer and trans folks to gather at the conference center in Madison, Wisconsin for a weekend of education, connectivity, and other queer uh, magic It was an exciting time to be back in this space. The last time we convened was in February of 2020, right before all of the pandemic meltdown happened. Um, So it was really rewarding and exciting to get back into this space and relearn the reality of what it means to be in community with queer and trans folks as we continue to navigate the residual impacts of a global pandemic. Um, So if you are unfamiliar with the largest regional LGBT college conference in the country, I highly encourage you to check out mumbletech.org. That's M-B-L-G-T-A-C-C.org. We'd love to have you at next year's conference. So check out that website to learn more about where we'll be next year and what you can look forward to at that conference. So in addition to leaving that conference with uh, a quite uh, unnecessary chest cold, um, I only get sick once a year, and I really wish it hadn't been during conference weekend, but lo and behold, it did. I headed down to Northern Illinois, where I had the fortune to hang out with my father for the first time since before the pandemic started. So um, we hung out and had a really great time. But I wanna talk about the other cohabitator that I got to hang out with while I was at my father's. So my dad took in my childhood dog and has been caring for him for years, right? And I want you to imagine this thick, stocky chihuahua terrier mix with a snaggletooth who kind of does a double step trying to get the back end of his body to catch up with the front end of his body, who runs into the furniture a little bit because he's losing his eyesight because he's 17 years old, y'all. So I've had this dog in my life since he was a puppy, and it was also really great for me to be able to spend time with him. Um, But I, I have to implicate my dog because... Born and raised in the Midwest as he was, he is also uh, a chronic offender of not taking the last bite of food. So I discovered, right, that one of his favorite treats is a little handful of animal crackers. Don't know how he's chewing them because he's gotten like 23 teeth pulled, but animal crackers is his preferred snack. And so every single time that my dad would put a little handful of these crackers on the floor, inevitably, this dog would waddle away, leaving one cookie still on the floor. I couldn't believe it. I was like, I, I did not raise you right. I did not raise you like this. So even our pets take on our Midwest nice characteristics, y'all. Next time you give your dog some treats, see if they eat at all. And teach them better. On to our topic of the day. I am so, so excited to be bringing you this conversation with three amazing folks um, who work in the craft brewing industry. Not only did we get into an incredible conversation about the craft and artistry of the immersive world of brewing amazing handcrafted beverages, but we talked about the reality of the service industry writ large, some of the gendered nonsense that comes with customer service, hospitality, and service industry realms. We talked about accountability and how these folks are involved in some really rad work doing some queer brewer collectives that are focused on challenging, inequitable, and uninclusive practices in the service industry and some of the programs and projects that they've pushed forward um, to bring folks together and mobilize folks around holding the industry accountable um, for treating marginalized folks um, with some semblance of dignity, right? And as we're witnessing surges of labor rights and labor equity movement work around the country and around the globe, I think some of the examples that the folks on this week's episode are talking about are going to offer some guidance and a possible framework um, for how to continue doing necessary work to ensure appropriate, equitable, and affirming labor conditions for folks in any industry. So whether your drink of choice is an IPA, a gingery kombucha, or perhaps a tall glass of oat milk, I guarantee it will pair nicely with this episode of Take the Last Bite. y'all we cannot do this we cannot be these stereotypical midwesterners please eat the rest of this food we just have these conversations every day with people like this is exhausting i don't want to do this anymore <laughs> why can't we be in space with hundreds of other queer and trans folks and having these necessary conversations i don't
1: know who you are but I, we're gonna talk by the potatoes
2: for five minutes because aesthetic is the only thing keeping my dysphoria at bay yeah i'm broke all the time but i look amazing definitely gonna talk about midwest nice and if that's
0: if that's That's um, as real as it wants to think it is. Midwest nice is white aggression. That's what it is. All right, friends, I think we can jump right into it and get started. I'm super stoked to be in conversation with y'all tonight. Um, This has been a long time coming, talking with um, May as part of the Institute team to make this happen. So I'm glad that this worked out for us to chat. Um, And just to like dive right into it, I figured we could do a round of introductions for folks who's on the space um, with names, pronouns, and then just digging right into it deeper, maybe any personal stories about how, you got started, um, in, or interested in brewing and then the broader industry, maybe even talking about what that means. Um, so yeah. Uh,
3: sure. You? I, I can go 1st We we're talking the same time. Um, uh, my name is Tyler. I use, uh, he, they pronouns. Um, uh, I've started getting into the beer industry sort of a long time ago, just from like, being 21 and being able to buy legal beer. uh, I'm just going to liquor store and treating myself every once in a while to like a blue moon. Um, And kind of went from there, from there to something a little bit more local, something more hoppy, and eventually just kind of fell in love with it. Um, And at the time I was living in uh, in Mint Blaine, working at a liquor store, meeting reps from different breweries, falling in love with like all the label art and, and all that. And I knew that uh, at that point, the beer industry is kind of where I wanted to go. Um, I fell in love with the process of making beer, um, hearing the stories of why beer is what it is. And uh, eventually quit the liquor store to work at Modest Brewing, uh, where I am currently. Um, and I run the forward facing marketing. So I designed the majority of the labels I uh, run social medias and create content. So,
4: exciting! Happy to have you here. Tyler. Um, My name is Kate Lois. Uh, I go by she, her, and I'm currently on the brewing team um, at Dangerous Man. Um, I never really saw myself uh, choosing this path for my career, at least in my 20s, I didn't see it. Um, But that's because, like, I went to school for chemistry at the University of Minnesota, like here in Minneapolis. And um, in the College of Science and Engineering, um, they really kind of um, train you to be like a nine to five corporate scientists and like I really knew that wasn't up my alley anyway however um, the brewing industry was never seen as like a potential career path or a place to work Um, so yeah I didn't see myself here but um, after college I didn't know where I what I wanted to do with my life so I went into the Peace Corps and I came out of that knowing that I wanted to work in an industry that brought people together and long story short uh, now I work in craft beer so That's so exciting. And we'll definitely
0: talk about like the trajectory from like college and college choices to like landing in this type of field.
5: Hi, I'm May Yakubowski. Um, I use they them pronouns. Um, Currently, I am the volunteer and community engagement coordinator at Dangerous Man Brewing. Um, But uh, exciting news, at the end of the month, I will be moving over to Wooden Ship Brewing Company as uh, their taproom manager which is going to be a really what? exciting challenge and I kind of see that position as maybe like a culmination yeah, yeah 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 oh my god RB I'm sorry I haven't even had a chance to tell you <laughs> yeah so I'm um, very excited about that um, how I got into craft beer was a total accident um, I got out of grad school in 2018 I have my master's in comparative religion at where my thesis really kind of like was really just about like community and like finding queer community and bringing people together. Um, so I knew that's kind of the work that I wanted to do, especially when I moved to the cities. Um, and I uh, started out in fundraising. It was not feeling like maybe the best fit for me at that time. Um, so I just started shooting resumes out uh, pretty much everywhere. And Danger span had been a couple blocks away from my apartment. So I sent them a resume and I said, you know, this has absolutely nothing to do with beer, um, but here are the things I can do. Do you guys need me? And uh, lo and behold, like a month or two later, they uh, emailed me and they said, "Yep, we need you." Um, so I've been there for about two years. I absolutely love it. I cannot think of, I can't think of a better industry, despite despite some of the problems and some of the the struggles that we're definitely going to talk about later on, I think ultimately like the core of this industry is founded on bringing people together. And that is like the most beautiful thing. So that's like why I, I stay.
0: Yeah, that's super exciting for your new gig. I feel like I've watched your like career trajectory since you entered Minnesota and where you've landed just feels like more and more affirming, especially since like I sat on the phone, sat on the phone with you or sat in messaging with you when you were like, I'm leaving this position like right now. <laughs> Um, in a field that like was not affirming, right? So then, for you to be in a space right now where you feel like you have found like a good groove and a good place, like that's really exciting to hear that that this is where you've landed in your time in Minnesota so
5: far. Yes, yeah, I'm really excited about it. I, it feels like the right next step, and now I can like really be a part of Minnesota. I don't know. I feel like a Minnesota.
2: Well,
0: you bet, <laughs> Kate, were you going to add something else? I know we. I think both stumbled
4: over. <laughs> Not really. I just want to say congrats. It's really, really exciting to see you, May, um, um moving on to like whatever you think is a greener pasture for your career mm-hmm. in terms of like progressing as a professional in the beer world. So it's like, it's really exciting to see people take up space and be like, yeah, I'm here to take up the space. Mm-hmm.
5: Totally. And it's like, it's also really exciting too, to be in an industry where like, I like I'm so supported, right? Like, when I uh, told Rob and Sarah, like, I mean, my gosh, they were both, Rob and Sarah, the owners of Dangerous Man for Contest, and um, they both were just so happy, and, like, I mean, we all kind of cried a little, but, like, still, overall, just so much love and support. Like, it's one of these industries where, like, competition is there for sure, but, like, I don't know ultimately, no, it's not. People are just kind of there for each other and want to see each other succeed in whatever way makes sense.
0: To the point, right, of like taking up space, right, like a, a big piece of what is, I think, essential to talk about when we're talking about the, the just nature of the work that y'all are specifically doing, but just hospitality work, um, service type roles, which inherently is what, um, you know, craft beer and like distillery work is, right, is just even in your personal narratives, kind of the sometimes serendipitous ways that especially like queer folks end up in these types of roles, right? They're not, unfortunately, right? Especially with this pandemic, I think we've seen that there's kind of this like stigma or like interpretation of service type roles being less glorious or kind of being like these stepping stones that can't really be, you know, these meaningful places of work or these meaningful careers, which we know is garbage and, right, mean something about the fact that at least from my perception, queer and trans folks, you know, kind of are pipelined into these roles because of socioeconomic um, things, right? Needing to pay for housing maybe sooner than cishet peers because of relationships with family, all of these like economic factors. So I think when You know, Kate, right, like bringing up this idea of taking up space, like a big piece I definitely want to talk with y'all about is just like a broader conversation about the pathways for queer folks, like into service work and hospitality roles and just like the meaning of that and just what that means for you and just what, you know, all, all of that, all
4: of that. Yeah, that's kind of a it's a major umbrella to <laughs> to start off on. But like yeah, I easy the, questions. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. Um in the industry we have this saying that there's like back of house and there's front of house. And then that goes for like restaurant industry as a whole and like most service industries, right? But like back a house in brewing is much different than back of house in a restaurant. And front of house everywhere is generally very similar um but maybe i'm overgeneralizing. what i'm saying is uh i started waitressing and bartending when i was in college and then there was a point where i was like finally getting my footing in beer and i was like i've been beer tending and i'm done slinging pints for other people i'll pour my own (laughs) but that was just me um but like there is there's a major major many major factors that go into like queer people choosing to enter into the hospitality industry and honestly sometimes it's not a choice and that like really blows and um like the danger of being a front of house facing employee as a queer person is like scary scary as hell and like i'm saying that as a white person like i'm and as a cis white person i haven't had it that bad um and so yeah, like, I, yeah, I can't even imagine <laughs> the worst of it. But, yeah, I don't know. That's all I got.
3: <laughs> I think for me, it was less difficult. Um, I think part of it is because I am, like, a white person, but I'm a white man. So I I have way more privilege. But I also came from it not from a front the front of the house side. I came from the art side of it. Uh, which I think definitely helped me uh, where the, the work was more prevalent than the person behind it, uh, which I guess can also be a little demoralizing. Um, but at the same time, I, to me, most queer people have a little bit more tendency into the crea- creativity realms. Um, I, just from, I don't know what, I, I can't science this um but uh yeah so I think I had it way easier um and it wasn't really too difficult uh to get in working at a liquor store prior I got to meet a lot of people and I got to test the the waters a little bit more I guess
5: Yeah, I think this is actually something that's been on my mind a lot recently um, or within like the past year or so. Um, So like similar to probably a decent amount of folks um, over the worst of the pandemic um, had a nice little gender reveal, (laughs) uh, which is that I don't have one of those. Um, So um, coming from this like or shifting from from really kind of presenting and reading as, like, a a cis woman to now kind of navigating, navigating transness and what trans identity means for me, especially as someone who, like, I, I kind of ride the wave between front of housework and then, like, service work, which is pretty, like, unique, I would say, in craft beer, not necessarily in craft beer in Minnesota. We have, like, so many breweries who have extensive like charitable giving programs and community engagement programs that are like really powerful um but we're definitely like really lucky state statewide or nationwide right i you don't necessarily see that on a national scale um so so in some sense that that work is unique but as a front of house person kind of navigating that shift with regulars and navigating that shift even among co-workers right um the, the shift to, like, they, them pronouns, the shift from um, my other name to May, right? Um, even for me, that was kind of difficult. Um, and it's something we talk about, a few of my coworkers and I talk about every once in a while. So, like, like when I'm behind the bar, obviously, like, in these quick moments, people are going to, to do things like, like misgender you or call you ma'am or whatever, depending on how you present. And, and in some senses, it's like it's so ingrained and so socialized that you almost can't be mad. Like you can be, and it feels uncomfortable and gross, but it's like, you know, how do you navigate those moments? And that's going to look different for everybody. Um, I'm lucky to have a team and like a, you know, a bunch of coworkers that I feel incredibly supported by no matter what decision I would make. But, um, it is, it's weird to think about on, on the daily and then it kind of feels like you don't necessarily have the authority to take up space in the ways that you want to. Um, Unless you're, like, a really angry trans person like myself.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think, I think the, like, gendered component, right, because, like, when I think about even just the term hospitality or when you think about, like, hospitality in its standard form, right, like, uh, I envision, or you know, and I worked at a catering company when I was still in college, like young, right? Like, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Very rigid, like gender roles about like who could do what types of activities, like who could carve the roast beef was apparently like a gendered conversation. Like it was so strange. I'm just like, I don't want to do it because I'm a vegetarian, but that that should have nothing else to do with the fact that like you're choosing based on gendered things, um, rigid expectations around like maybe uniforms and clothing. So, I feel there's this level of rigidity and just like gender ick that I think can come as like this presupposed like baseline for like hospitality industry. I especially think about like high-end hotels or like high-end restaurants, right? Whereas some of the stuff that I think we're going to unearth through this conversation is that, that doesn't have to be the frame of mind in service and hospitality industry or in kind of these front facing types roles. Like it doesn't, it can be much more lax and much more inherently um, queer, which is is exciting. Um, But I don't know that all all types of service industry or hospitality like work would, follow suit as quickly right so like how does how is there maybe some bridging that can be done with some of the stuff that's being modeled um at the breweries y'all work at the collectives that y'all are forming and a part of or some of the other ones that inspired um inspired this work uh in Minneapolis you know I (laughs) I went to Burger King like a month ago and this adorable little queerling that was handing me my food like asked me what my pronouns were and I was like this is fascinating. Like I was so excited, but also so surprised because just like, that's not, I don't expect to be asked my pronouns through the drive-through, right? But like, why should that be abnormal? It was just the cutest, adorable thing. And he's said hello to me and remembers every every time I come through now because I get a lot of impossible whoppers. But just like, just an experience like that is unfortunately maybe not, you know, commonplace either way right like how many people get mispronounced in like you know front of house type service work because it's just would almost be unacceptable maybe not being able to put their actual name on their name tags just all the gender gender ick that I think I think can be commonplace in very rigid standard like service industry work.
3: Yeah I mean I think we have it lucky in the beer industry where it's seen as like the anti-professional job you're you're going there having fun you're drinking beer on the job you're you're dressing however you want to dress whatever you feel comfortable in um i mean i haven't seen much like there aren't a lot of trans people in the beer industry and so there aren't a lot of people i can't think of a better way but like pushing the boundaries of like what it means to, to dress the way you feel and how you feel comfortable. Um, and I don't see there being a ton of businesses and owners and um, coworkers like being against that, uh, which is really great and exciting and to, to be working in these places that are very much or uh, trying to do their best to be gender confirming um, I was at Dangerous Man and um, Lee pulled me aside one time and he was like, hey, what are your pronouns? And I, I think this is roughly around the time May was coming out um, with that because he, he was very, like, susceptible to it now. He had, he had been exposed to someone who was trans. And so he pulled me aside and asked pronouns. And I was very surprised to take it back cause I just wasn't expecting it. And he was literally just, like, walking me through the brew house and just stopped me at one point. Um, and that was like very affirming, like, like you said, like out of the blue, you weren't expecting it. You were just going among amongst your day, doing whatever. And like those little things really helped me like feel like, Oh no, this is great. This is an industry that I want to stay in. This is people I want to continue to, to work with. Um, and it's been really fun. And I've seen a lot of, uh, restaurants actually now where they're less strict about dress codes. Um, some like the more local ones. Uh, I mean, people are just wearing T-shirts, dresses, skirts, kind of just whatever they come to. Obviously, there's a few things they have to be wearing to be like OSHA certified or whatever. But for the most, most part in the higher end industry of service um, or like maybe middle ground, like it's shifting away from that too, from the front of the house, which is really exciting to see. But
2: cool. I feel like I have two two trains of thought with that and um with the first one being that like I think the rigidity in our environments ends up looking a lot different and probably a lot more based in um like interacting specifically like with our customers and like with our demographic of people and so that's kind of I think where that rigidity comes in to play is that, you know, yeah, we get to, you know, show up exactly how we are and feel like safe and supported. Um, and also I would say like, we're pretty lucky and maybe, maybe exceptions that prove the rule. Right. Um, I don't want to necessarily like speak for, for everyone in service. Um, but as lax and as comfortable as those environments can be, can also like, it can be a space of rigidity in terms of just interacting with, the types of you know folks who who come into craft breweries, right? So it doesn't just like start and end with like staff and leadership. It also plays into like who is our community, who's showing up and supporting us, who's buying our beer, you know, who feels safe taking up space uh, in our tap room or coming to our um, neighborhood, right? Like um, I'm thinking about this a lot as I transition over to Wooden Ship. Um, we're in a more affluent neighborhood, which is amazing and you know, has a lot of possibility there, but it's definitely a different kind of community to navigate than Dangerous Man. Um, and then my second train of thought, uh, I have a, I have a cute Starbucks Queer-Do story um, from the other day. Um, this person like handed, or my drink was like taking a second or, and they were new and they were trying really hard to make conversation with me. And so they were like performing that, like that rigidity of like, you have to like, please the customer and constantly engage the customer and and whatever. Um, and I told them they were having an amazing Gia Gunn moment because they looked just like Gia Gunn in one of her confessionals, um, from Drag Race. And, immediately this person was like oh my god let me tell you about my day like <laughs> and we just had like this really cute bonding moment before I you know got my drink and drove off and I I'd like to think that in those spaces to the demographic of like who shows up is important and also that like those spaces can be breeding grounds for like solidarity right like it's an, it's an opportunity for staff, for the um, proletariat of the staff, <laughs> right, to bond in some, some way, shape, or form. Um, wow, made it, what, half an hour before bringing up <laughs> uh, communism? Love this for me.
0: <laughs> One of the things that was brought up in, like, all of your personal narratives, or what, I, at least I know, you know, even outside of these stories, right, is just, like, the trajectory of like college choices and like col- like what you did in college and either like bringing that into this work in ways that maybe wouldn't be readily identifiable or completely rejecting like what you maybe studied in college um, and being like here's this opportunity that I wouldn't even know existed in college which I think even if we're not talking specifically about like craft beer and breweries and distilleries right like is a pretty common like college student experience um and just the idea of like oh I studied this thing and feel like I have to go directly into this field um, and there's no other options for me versus like figuring out how to transfer some of the knowledge or skill sets that you would build through just by nature going to college and taking classes and then learning oh I can do this cool shit um, in this atmosphere like in this environment and all these other other cool things are going to unfold. And so knowing that a lot of our listeners will probably be um college folks um or folks that support college folks right just like talking about maybe any of those aha moments or some of the things that you really value about like either saying, you know, I'm going to take a huge departure from what I did in college and try this new adventure or being able to say like cool, like I learned this thing and like now I can put it into this space. Um, that's also really
4: affirming in ways that I wouldn't have thought possible. Okay, I can definitely directly speak to that if that is allowed. Okay, okay, okay. So um, like I said before, I got my undergrad in um, chemistry, and uh, I didn't want to be like a corporate scientist. But I um, so much of brewing is chemistry um literally um to be a good brewer you need to be a good chemist and a good microbiologist and like i took exactly one biology class in college so i could get my degree and i highly regret that um i really wish i got some formal micro um education however um a colleague and friend of mine who used to be uh the tap not the tap room wow the lab manager at fair state rose Picklow. um studied micro and uh, we met in college. And so when she's kind of the one who like got me into the industry. Um, and uh, yeah, so like I shared chemistry knowledge with her and she shared micro knowledge with me. And it was like the best of both worlds as like lab people. And um, it was like really affirming that like, I definitely don't use most of the classes that I took, at least um in the upper electives. And that's fine. I still have some of the textbooks that I Sometimes think I might use in the future. They're just like too expensive for me to want to donate. <laughs> so I'm like, this is just gonna sit on a half-priced bookshelf. Um <laughs> and I can't do it. But um yeah, where was I going with that? Oh yeah. So there is a certain type of like skill set that you get from going to school for hard science in your undergrad at like a Big Ten school. Like that was my experience, and like you learn how to like run the basics of a lab, be really safe. You got chemical safety, you got micro safety. If you're like somebody who took those kinds of classes, like there's a lot of foundational chemistry knowledge that directly translates into the brewing process. And like, for me, like all of these light bulbs kind of went off at the same time. And it was like, it was like three years ago when I started in the industry and like, it's just been really, yes, affirming, like we were saying before, like, I definitely um, very much value the one degree that I have so far. So, um, and I want to like stay in that, but like, I'm always, I've always been somebody who really knew her mind. And when I chose the, to get my degree in chemistry, I was like, yeah, I'd, I definitely will use this because I enjoy doing it. So I don't know, that's, uh that's my setup for success from the academia, but Yeah. Anybody else?
3: I'm also one of those rare birds that like is doing the job that they went to school for. Um, Although originally I went to school uh, in Sioux Falls to do video production. uh, And I dropped out literally in my last semester for like a dream internship at a snowboarding company doing like film stuff for them all the way in Vermont. So I dropped out of school, took like a week to drive out to Vermont, Uh, Ended up getting there and uh, found out that they had got audited the day before I got there um, because they had unpaid interns and I guess that's illegal in Vermont. Uh, And so they had to back pay interns from the past two years, pay the interns they currently had for all the work that they they have done. So they just didn't have the money to keep me on. So I literally stayed like two extra days there, explored the city a little bit drove back, tried to re-enroll in school because it, I think it only been about a week and a half, two weeks. I was like, okay, I missed a few classes. I can make it up. And I get there and turns out that they sent my entire um, check from the bank that I was going to pay for uh, my student loans to pay for schooling. They sent, sent the entire check back. So I had this like debt I had to pay off before I could like start back up or get my credits transferred to anywhere else so everything was just on hold and so i went back working my minimum wage job for like 30 hours a week trying to survive Did a stint uh on a teen mom 2 episode uh working uh in the background and then moved up here uh enrolled in the liquor store ended up entering like this design contest through minneapolis institute of arts no what school was it i don't remember it doesn't exist anymore so it doesn't really matter, my degree is mute now. Um, But uh, yeah, ended up getting second place in that and got two free semesters uh, in a graphic design program. Uh, Graduated with an associates and just kind of never looked back. And I get to use all of those things in my job currently, which is fun and I really like it. (laughs) Um, and, And not a lot of people can say they went to school and doing exactly what they wanted to do. So I'm very fortunate about that.
2: Um, Well, I can say that I'm not doing at all what I went to school for, like not even a little bit. And um, Arby knows this because Arby and I have known each other. I mean, I know they were saying um, since like 2014. So they have definitely seen all the wild trajectories that I have been on. Um, But yeah, when I, when I went to undergrad, I I went to the University of Michigan and got um, a degree in English and women and gender studies. Um, And I don't know, I didn't know what I was going to do with that. I just knew that I was like, I really loved reading books. I really loved analyzing things. And like, I kept trying to find like, how can I like apply that to like some day-to-day life that doesn't make me feel like trapped in like a box all day right um and so I kind of like kind of understood that as like well I'm good at working with people I really like doing that I had um two or three service jobs um in like retail and I was a barista for a little bit um and I worked at a concert venue all throughout college and um, the, f- like my favorite part of all of those jobs was just like talking to different people and like building community and like having regulars, um, having regulars that like you have a good relationship with. Oh my God, there's nothing better. Um, uh, no matter what it is you're doing, I think. Um, so yeah, did that for a little while then went to grad school because I, I really had it in my head that I, uh, was going to like get my PhD and teach, Um, halfway through my master's program, I was like, you know, I really actually don't vibe on teaching and I don't know what that means, but, uh, I'm going to make something else happen. (laughs) Um, so moved out to the cities, got a job in fundraising, um, and then, um, really did not feel like that was the right fit. And like, that is maybe like the one thing I want to emphasize about this, like long rambling resume of mine is that like it's so okay to just hop around like with caution obviously and like um and with the best intentions but like it's hard to figure that out especially like when you have one idea of what it is you want to do or like or what you're told that like you can do um and then just finding like a way out of that narrative and like finding out like what comes next and what makes you feel good and you know, what kind of position or job or industry allows you to show up in a way that, like, I don't know, we're not our work, obviously, but, um, I think it's not so, it's not so bad to say that you want to, like, find a job or a place where, like, you don't hate spending most of your life at, you know, um, so I don't know I guess all of this to say that like I I'm not doing at all what I thought I was going to be doing but it's even better than what I could have thought it was going to be um because it just kind of happened organically and I think that's how like I don't know you have to like trust the process a little even though it's totally terrifying when you're in the middle of it yeah I feel like
0: just listening to all y'all's you know, stories and relationships with work you're doing right now, it all sounds like there was some level of like serendipity to all of it. Just like, oh, I needed this job and then this inspired this thing. Or, you know, I threw my resume in a lot of directions based on maybe matters of convenience and what was like in the area and like then landed in this particular place. And then that's been building off of that Um, or kind of having this aspiration to like do a field of work and then applying it in a place that maybe folks wouldn't make an immediate connection to. So I, the, just like the, the cool coolness, I guess, of just like how all of it comes together and how all of it happens. And then y'all are in each other's ecosystem just by that, like nature of serendipity and then doing cool work together and
4: being able to have conversations like this. I don't think anybody ends up in craft beer full time by accident. Like i don't believe in coincidence serendipity is definitely a good word for that kind of instance um like it's a such a niche part of all of the industry like all of the service industry that like you have to take some sort of special interest in it for some reason and like if that doesn't drive you to want to be in that space then like you're probably making a mistake by applying to a brewery but yeah it's a it's a place where like people want to generally speaking people work in breweries cause they want to be there. You know, they want to, they have to find some connection to the product or the people that consume the product in that community. Like it all goes back to a community, right? Takes a village to raise a brewery, honestly.
2: Um, Kate though, I think you're, I think you're right. Like it is, it definitely is serendipity. Like no one really ends up in this industry by accident. But I would even say that that extends beyond craft beer and just into the world of craft in general. Um, so like, uh, earlier today, Tyler and I were, we're meeting with folks at a distillery in St. Louis park. Um, and this is part of what we can talk about later, our work with deviant minds. Um, and just like chatting with, um, some of the folks there about how, like, it's a family business, um, like truly corely like run by family. Um, And that, you know, none of, none of that was their intended career path, but I mean, it's so beautiful there and it works so seamlessly and um, you know, they're not without their challenges like any other place in the industry, but um, yeah, it's something about craft. It's something about taking the time to do something really well and to do something really experimental and to be creative and um to like have all of these things floating around but also at the end of the day it's just beer like there's something so like i don't know existential about it um where like it's just beer but there's so many layers and so many things like that we could we could peel apart about like the the chemistry and the alchemy behind beer making right or recipe development to You know, how do you like arrange the glassware in a way that is not only efficient but like aesthetically pleasing? Because that kind of goes back to like, what kind of environment are you trying to create? What kind of space are you building ultimately? Right. And that's true. I think with anything with craft is there, there's just a little more care into like an intentionality into what it is you want to put out in the world. I think that's
4: what's so magical about it is that there's so much intention behind everything in what goes into making a beer and what goes to creating a space where people can consume that. Like, and like you said, like all craft, you know, artisanal beverages, artisanal foods, like it's all so much more intentional than like your chain place in the suburbs. You know what I mean? Like somebody's putting their own energy into it. And so like, it's just like so much more authentic, you know, and genuine and, um, yeah, that's,
2: that's what I had to add. (laughs) Ooh, I want to jump on that real quick too, to in defense of, of the suburb, uh, restaurant, which is that not, not that they are good. They're horrible liminal places. They don't exist and yet they do. Um, (laughs) but I think those are places where like a lot of folks, especially folks going to college in towns where like like college towns, right? Like where the college is everything. And so like the most bump in place is gonna be like a B-dubs, which like bummer, that blows. That blows for that college and for those students. Um, And that could be a really fun gateway into the service industry in general. I don't know, I worked at a a local chain coffee shop in college, Big B, and loved it. Our specific franchise, definitely tons of drama, tons of trouble, but working at a chain, I think was, was kind of a valuable experience because it showed me what I don't want and what we could do. And also like, to some extent, a lot of, and this can also like maybe shift into a conversation about accessibility to get into this industry. Right. But like, you need years of experience, right. Like before you could even, before you could move into craft and like, whether or not that is exclusionary or like has its benefits or whatever we could totally suss out because like this is also like a newer thought for me but um there's always kind of the requirement of like two years of experience and so like where are you going to get that um if not your local b-dubs or um or like any place with some pbr on tap right that way you can learn how to at least like couple and uncouple a keg and then Maybe you get really into that and then you decide that keg washing is your thing and then you get into keg washing. Um, says no one ever. But <laughs> that's why Kate's Those are right all now. my dreams. That's all I've ever wanted to do. <laughs> I don't know. I walk
3: down into the brew house and no one ever looks happy cleaning kegs. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> I will on their
3: phone, <laughs> like trying to distract themselves by doing something else.
2: <laughs> sometimes, sometimes Rob Miller has so much fun cleaning kegs I will walk down into the basement and he has like fish or like one of his favorite jam bands going um and it's just like zend out on cleaning kegs because <laughs> <laughs> it's it's such a repetitive act but um anyways <laughs> the point um is that like I don't know it's it's a bummer that that kind of seems to be the current structure but like And even still, I think chain restaurant experience is still almost a barrier into the craft world, right? Because the assumption is, like, you have these skills, but, like, are you going to be able to, like, hone in on one thing or whatever? You know, I don't know. It's it's a weird area, accessibility into this industry.
4: I've kind of been percolating on that for, like, a hot minute in, like there's as we were saying earlier there's like front of house and there's back of house and like most people who want to get involved get involved in front of house first and if they eventually go to the back of house that's great on the other hand like it's there's such a major barrier because it's such like a niche part of service in terms of like beer styles and how to taste and descriptions of that. And like everything that goes along with knowing how to pour a beer correctly, which glassware are you using? Is there a right amount of head on it? Um, do you need to change the keg? Cause this one's getting gnarly. Did you change the keg and not taste it? Like there's a lot of niche information and not a lot of proper training that goes into this stuff. And so it's really easy for somebody to start slinging beers for the first time and not bartending, but like beer tending and honestly get pretty overwhelmed with the amount of information And, um, the crappy thing about craft beer is that it's all small businesses and it's rare that people are in, uh, roles where they need to train people and they actually know how to train people. Like there is a certain skill set that comes along with needing to, um, communicate information that has like a very scientific base to it. Um, even if you're not using super heady lingo, um, there's still a lot of like vernacular that needs to be defined when you enter craft beer. And it's like really overwhelming there's no guidebook for it either and like you can just step in the back of a brewery and like ask what x y and z parts are and like that can go in somebody's ear and out the other because they've never heard that term before and it's like unless you're practicing that information you're never going to remember it you know what I mean
3: and on top of that I mean the hiring practices in general in the beer industry have long been less of like who's going to be the best fit for this role? And like, Oh, I want to work with my buddy. I want to work with my friend. I'm going to hire my friend in. And so like accessibility in in that sense is also like insanely difficult. And one of the reasons why uh, the brewing industry is so whitewashed, right? Like all owners are making a brewery because they want to work with their friends. They want to make beer. They want to be part of that. And they're always coming with their friends and, and majority of their friends are look just like them. Um, and that's like the easiest way to get into the beer industry is if you know someone within the beer industry, um, cause the, the, the bar to getting in is oftentimes a little bit lower than like your average job. Um, and a lot of things you can learn on the job, um, whether you you're learning them the right thing or not is up for debate. Um, but finding a way in to the brewing industry it has been very difficult for a lot of people who are a minority because they're they want to get in but they don't know anyone so they're not getting hired for those jobs and they don't have the experience um, or even if they do have the experience they're just still taking their friends over this person who's just as qualified if not more.
2: Exactly and that leads into like who has access to capital typically right like cis white guys who already have kind of like generational wealth built up right um that that being said I feel like specifically in Minnesota at least specifically in Minneapolis we've seen a pretty big shift in the dialogue at least regarding this and kind and and kind of talking more about how how white ownership is and not just ownership but like leadership and not just leadership, but demographic, right? Of the folks who are coming in and who feels comfortable drinking craft beer. And it's like, you know, if you have, if if the idea is that you just want to make a bunch of beer with your friends and make beer for new friends, right? Like going back to like accessibility, it's also really tough too when you think, when you think about demographic, right? Especially like craft beer in the beginning. I know physical. <laughs> this video is so behind um especially like when craft beer was first being a thing right we think about like a lot of the beer labels were pretty misogynist um the idea was to have right like this early thousands tara reed-esque bartender um you know or 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 beer tender right and like things are certainly like not not to that level now but i think that idea still kind of pervades that like um, you, you want a certain aesthetic and that comes down even to the folks that like you hire and, and who you seek out and also like who feels comfortable even applying for or working at your space, right? Like I'm, sh- I'm sure there are maybe breweries that, um, if not myself, other folks in our industry would, would a hundred percent say that they wouldn't want to apply to, um, because they're not safe for folks of color or queer folks, um. I think as an industry where we're working on addressing that, but, um, it comes and goes and starts, right. Which I think RB, we, we could talk about in higher ed too, right. Like sometimes it seems like change is happening and then we take 10 steps back.
0: Ain't that the truth. It related to education, right. I was sitting here, you know, thinking through a lot of these, like, stellar talking points thinking about like the myth of quote unquote unskilled labor and if someone's trajectory right like whether it's a college job or just you know in this pandemic folks kind of taking what is available and we could have a whole separate conversation about like a living wage and, and capitalism because it's always going to come up. Right. But just, there's this myth around the unskilled labor. Right. So you have, you know, maybe the young college aged you know, first job, you know, paying for college or even in high school, right. Job where they're working at the B dubs or like in my college town, I think um, Applebee's was kind of like the biggie right home of the, like the $1 margarita, which I'm sure requires no, like, you know, uh, Tacked, right, to fill this giant gallon. That's the image I have in my head is just this giant gallon bucket of just diluted, terrible, like margarita mix, right? So, like, you've got these examples that folks are generally coming into as these, like, low wage starting type jobs where the education component to that work environment really isn't about you know, investing in that employee, teaching them like, here's why we do things this way. Here's why this is set up this way. And like also maybe teaching them poor practices, right? Like I don't necessarily want someone who learned to mix the giant like gallon bucket of margarita mix to sell them for a dollar at Applebee's coming into a situation where they're then in charge of like concocting drinks and deciding what tastes good, right? Like there there's gonna be like a knowledge gap, I think of just like what is being taught to folks in like food and drink spaces to then possibly carry that into these places which from hearing from y'all right are are more about intention and curating space and curating right like everything from the imagery to the taste to like things having concepts behind them of like yeah we picked this because it was seasonal and we picked this because like it it great creates a better like mouthfeel like what like all of these things that would not possibly come out of what is unfortunately stigmatized as unskilled labor which all speaks to I think like the westernized conception of education that is so commonplace where we just want folks to do the labor by rote not necessarily give the context for why why we do the things we do and how to do them in a way that might be meaningful and important to people
1: You're listening to Take the Last Bite, a podcast produced by the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity. The Institute re-envisions an educational climate that centers the needs and experiences of systemically disadvantaged students and affirms and encourages sexuality and gender diversity. Through this podcast and other programs, the Institute provides community and connection to the next generation of leaders in the movement for our collective liberation. Building a sense of community plays a critical role in improving mental health outcomes for queer and trans youth. We are dedicated to furthering queer success in the Midwest. Our work is made possible through the generous financial support of grassroots donors. Your donation helps provide space for queer and trans students to experience the joy of being in community and helps remove barriers to accessing queer and trans-centered spaces. To learn more and make a contribution today, visit sgdinstitute.org forward slash giving.
0: All oh, right, right. So we've definitely already touched on this, but I want to go some levels deeper um, into talking about the importance and impact of queer folks in brewing, maybe more broadly, just like marginalized folks in brewing in general. Um, starting with like, you know, y'all's current vantage point is Minneapolis, maybe Minnesota broadly, but just talking about like the importance of this work as it pertains to the Midwest, um, you know, maybe work that you've seen outside of this region and like how, 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 like queer folks in brewing and some of the cool projects you're seeing really fit a particular need in the Midwest and or in Minnesota?
4: Well, let's just start with saying the Midwest is mostly white, passive aggressive people, basically people that don't like to have hard conversations about real life. They talk about the weather and um, sports, right? (laughs) I grew up in Southeast Wisconsin and um, yeah, there was not a lot not no people don't like to talk about anything they just have their small talk silently judge you and then go about their lives and um i think that uh the work that may and tyler are doing with deviant minds and the work that i've been doing with witch hunt has ushered in or helped to usher in a lot of change in at least like the minnesota brewing industry um and so I work with Witch Hunt and I'm an organizer. Um, We are a 501c3 um, based out of the cities. We have another chapter up in Fargo-Moorhead, but um, it's a a nonprofit that is aimed at kind of tearing down the barriers to production in beer for women and queer people in general and other just like marginalized groups. and uh, yeah, we try not to be too like exclusive with the description of like who we could offer a membership to and like membership is just kind of like, are you on the email list? Do you show up to events sometimes? Great, then it's a it's a very much an organization where you get out what you put in. And uh, as an organizer, I can say that like the amount of connections and like great conversations and change that like even I've helped make in my own community like is extremely rewarding and like, I uh, hope it never ends cause the work never ends. So yeah,
3: <laughs> that's what I'll say about that, but. Yeah, and then what May and I are doing with Deviant Minds are, is really built upon what Witch Hunt and uh, another organization called Brewing Change Collaborative have done and are doing currently, um, is creating these spaces where people can firsthand get their hands dirty within the beer industry understand and learn more about what happens with beer and fermentation and all of that. Um, And it's simple acts of just getting people in the brew house, getting people in that front door and showing that there are other people like them who also have these interests. That is so powerful that um, I'm really excited that we are able to have like a small piece of that pie and, and be able to help people realize that, you're not weird for liking beer. You're not weird for wanting to be like in an alternative sort of industry. You don't have to stay with the status quo. You can kind of take your own route. Um, And the beer industry has been that for me, has been that for us, I think. Um, And it's been cool to kind of see that shift I mean, all those shifts happened because really terrible things happened, um, but it give gave way and it's continuing to like give way to these marginalized people to, to take up this extra space that has been waiting for them to, to, to move into that's been needed, so.
2: Yeah, I think we are so lucky um, to be like, to be almost like at the, one of the epicenters of change in this industry from like a really like socially accountable mindset, right? So being able to, you know, form deviant minds and really suss out what that's gonna look like for queer folks in the service industry, like under the mentorship of and in partnership with orgs like Witch Hunt and Brewing Change Collaborative is so powerful. Um, right, because that's a network that extends so far beyond just our own groups, and um, and that like we're not necessarily siloed. Um, like kind of Kate was saying, we're not trying to only help like our corners, and like that those corners are rigidly defined. Um, but more that like we're all in this together, and that we can like recognize like the need for specific spaces um, and specific like advocacy. In the industry, right? Like, to leadership and um, and like what those things look like um, for folks moving forward. So, I'm excited to see how Deviant Minds grows and and the things that we have kind of going right now. We were focused on a lot of like collabs and and community partnerships to kind of get our name out there and um, really not just provide a space for folks who are in the industry, but I'm personally really pushing for our organization to create an industry that, like, make, that is accessible, right? That, like, you could just randomly, like, I want to open the door for that serendipity. Our experiences are amazing, um, but they're also, like, kind of unique, right? Like, there's a, there tends to be a lot of trial and tribulation, and maybe, like, in some respects, we all have, have our own that we're not, um, I don't know, processing or whatever, but um, I want to push for an environment in which that's not the case, that anyone could walk into craft beer and um, have the experience that like we've had. I'm curious, right, so like as someone who's not part of this industry at all,
0: right, like I'm learning from y'all in this moment, um, and also from the Beer Dabbler interview that I read yesterday in preparation for this conversation, um, you know, the the organizations or the kind of collectives that y'all are referring to, Witch Hunt, Deviant Minds, um, and the Grooming Change Collaborative, I was, I was thinking about this, right, that it feels like this very new to me anyway, like model of kind of like gathering and advocacy work for for folks in general, right? And I'm really taken with this idea because in some ways there's a level of precision, right? Like you're, you know, each each kind of organization is kind of focusing on a particular um, area of need, right? Like, you know, enhancing BIPOC, you know, black and brown folks' access and like engagement and um, uh, uh, affirmation in these spaces, um, you know, again, Kate kind of being loose in the language, right? But just ultimately like this this core around like women, femme folks, et cetera, like in-service work, and then deviant minds really focusing on, you know, queer and trans folks. Like all, all of that obviously is interconnected and needs to be accountable to each other. And it sounds like they're definitely in, in conversation. But to, to capture my actual question here, right? Like just the, the model of organizing, I think, is something that I'm really taken with of just kind of taking this very... Um, particular need as identified through y'all as folks in the work, I think feels different um, and important compared to what I think we, we being folks who are engaged with like social change work, kind of see as these very like large you know big bite very broad kind of movement conversations around like the whole lgbtq community right like that that doesn't offer necessarily as much utility perhaps as saying like here's this specific issue in this specific area of work and we're doing this work in this particular area aka minneapolis right to set a standard to like address things that are happening like in front of our faces and we are the folks who know in many ways the best right to be able to be in conversation with folks to make localized change and I'm very taken with kind of that localized component um the actual question in there right like is just speaking to any of that but ultimately just like the model the type of work like the influence for that do you feel like is that something that kind of exists elsewhere or is it kind of this emerging kind of thing that came out of a particular need kind of where y'all are at, because I don't know that I can really point to anything else and be like, that feels kind of like a similar concept, you know, of this very localized, um, like precise type of advocacy work.
4: As somebody who doesn't technically work in the nonprofit realm, I personally can't bring up any other orgs that are super similar to the ones that we've been discussing and are in ourselves. But I think that uh, they probably do exist within this industry and others, and we just don't hear about them. Um, I know that there is um, across the pond in on the British Isles, um, there's a, a group called uh, Queer Brewing. And they, I don't know what the liquor laws are like over there, but they actually like get to sell their own beer and like make it at all of like the organizers breweries. It's like super cool, but like they exist. It's just like, it's such, it's so niche. And um, I think a big part of why they're so localized is like, it's such a major problem In an industry but like you have to start small otherwise you're going to overextend yourself and it's not going to be sustainable like we have to be stewards of change in our communities yes but like we also have to make that change sustainable um and uh starting small is like the only way to do that um and like a lot of these groups are in their infancy
2: really so Totally. And like, and a lot of businesses are too, right? Like this is all, I mean, this is an industry of small businesses, right? This is, I think, um, wildly different in some respects than big beer, right? I don't know that I could speak to that experience and I'm sure that looks wildly different. Um, That being said, there is a lot of really powerful work being done across the nation, but like Kate said, it's not necessarily always hyped up or um, I think also part of it being an industry of small businesses is that like, the focus is on having local community impact and that like, at the end of the day, we all are contributing and working at a small business, which, you know, notoriously for better or for worse, we're all wearing multiple hats, you know, we're all probably overextending ourselves in some way, shape or form. partly because, you know, we love the work and partly because capitalism. Um, uh, so that being said, it's as nice as it would be to have like a national like c- like conglomerate or like a space in which we could like pull together all of these resources and all of this community. And I do hope we get there one day. Like, I think that's possible for us, uh, pending Delta and climate change, OBVI. Um But uh, really, it's okay if we don't hear about it nationally, because the the focus should be on your hyper localized community, right? I mean, if you're a small business trying to appeal to like, tourists like 1200 miles away year round, like, or who are coming in from 1200 miles away year round, like what is your charitable giving is going to look different. And like, and at a certain point, does that really make sense? If that's not the community you're in, you're not living there, you're not, you know, and I think Kate said it best as well that like, you know, we, we can all only do so much as small business folks and, and the power of like working directly with our localized communities, like can't, can't be understated. That's, I think where like real change can occur and has the potential to,
3: yeah, uh, I mimic everything you, you were just saying there, May. Um, and like the perks of being small, being local, hyper localized, is that you get that face to face with uh, people who might have opposition to you or, or, or with whatever. So, like having that face to face value, you're much more likely to have something positive come out of it. Um, you're much more likely to make actual change and, and make the industry better by being able to be so local. Um, and these large, big campaigns, they really only hype up their current base that's already there. Sure, it might bring some extra visibility to some other people, um, but for the most part, they're not going to create such change that um, people will change their minds or start thinking a little bit differently about uh, the things they say or how they say them. And so being able to be such so localized is really beneficial. Um, and then it also makes it so we can be nimble. We don't have to follow the script that all these bigger nonprofits have to kind of follow. Um, and then back to like other places that are doing it, there's all uh, in Canada, I think it's uh, in like the Alberta area, there's a uh, diversity in brewing nonprofit that's recently started up um, that is kind of doing what all of our organizations are trying to do, but under one umbrella. Um, So there are a few other places popping up and I think a lot of that happened because um, a few, maybe like a month ago now, a month and a half, uh, the brewing industry had their own, I hate to say like mean to moment, but it was along those lines um, where a lot of stuff that as an industry, we already knew it was there. It wasn't surprising to most people, uh, but it was always swept under the rug or it was um, not really addressed. And so it got brought to light and that was a catalyst to a lot of things happening in the beer industry, where I think in the next couple of months, we'll be seeing a lot more organizations uh, similar to ours that are being hyper-local, being very vigilant with in their own industry, um, to push for change and create better work environments.
2: And also like, I just remembered um, like even beyond uh, like different nonprofits, it's, I I mean, it also comes down to like queer owned breweries, right? So like, um, there's Giant Jones Brewing out in, I think it's Milwaukee. I was just trying to look it up and they are, trans-owned, women-owned, like, and they they do a lot of really cool and interesting stuff with how they curate space. Um, So I have this story through a friend of a friend, but that they um, tend to leave their lighting up a little bit more because bars traditionally, like, have darker lighting, make it a little unsafer for queer folks um, for a multitude of reasons, and so, like, they keep their lighting up most of the time or all of the time um and so like really thinking about like what these things that like maybe we're not talking about or are beyond conversation and really live more in the space of um if they live in the space of uh like ownership and authority right i think that kind of adds
4: to like how we see all this kind of activism take place like I've got Instagram up on my phone right now because um I it is a lot about like ownership of these places and like the people who want to make change and if they have the ability are gonna make their own brewery so I'm looking at one right now but I follow on Instagram called Dyke Beer and it's based out of Brooklyn New York and it's a lesbian brewery and I love that um and then like, I can see that it's followed by um, some Instagram accounts that do the activism work called like Bruise with Broads, Women of the Bevolution. Like these things exist, they're just not like a huge giant organized effort. Because the craft beer industry is not huge, uh, a huge organized effort. It's very disorganized. Um, yes, we have like the Brewers Association and the Master Brewers Association and like the American Society of Brewing Chemists, like. But those are all professional organizations. They are not activism groups, um, and so a lot of it. <laughs> Is also paying attention to which new which people are like leaving the breweries that they had maybe not great experiences at but have set themselves up to be entrepreneurs in their own right and like completely and in- eliminate the possibility of making a toxic space for um, workers and patrons in that respect um so there's there's a lot of facets to how this activism like really manifests itself in, in the world. Um, and, uh, it's just like, not like any other industry at all. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong on that, but, um, I just haven't encountered another industry that's like this. It, it definitely feels like, again, as a, a, person looking in, right. Like it's
0: definitely, it seems like this emerging iteration of kind of workers' rights, like labor rights type work based on kind of what some of the, you know, more prominent or kind of popular fields are for folks who are getting kind of the short end of that capitalism stick, right? Like, I think just, I think we're seeing this move toward whether it's like municipal elections and folks really driving towards being part of local politics, knowing that that's really where kind of the arm of change happens, you know, in these local settings. I think that we are, are ideally then seeing kind of organizing practices and activism practices being more about like what's happening like in front of your, you know, in front of your face, like actually on your block, which I think like Minneapolis in general out of like the last year, especially has really been like a, a framework for as, you know, with like Black Visions Collective and, um, the block is in the title and I can't think of the full name reclaim reclaim the block I was like it's in there right like literally doing this work around like please talk to your neighbors like talk about who's actually like in your immediate ecosystem versus like trying to like reach out beyond your scope and I think that that this model you know with the organizations that y'all are a part of um and and then uh brewing change collaborative, right, is kind of thinking in that modality of, like, what is happening here? What can we actually touch, like, physically touch? Like, who are we in conversation with already, right? And I'm curious, you know, as far as some of the ideas y'all have or the things that y'all have already done or the things that y'all have seen out of these, like, collectives, um, what, like, you know, creativity and, like, room do you have to do things that are inherently different? Because I imagine you get um, some uh, freedom in kind of how you devise things because you're not in, you know, accountable to foundation funders in the way that, like, a nonprofit industrial complex large-scale organization might be, right? Like, what, you know, what kind of, like, play you know playroom do you have with how you are orchestrating these organizations while also being very committed to this very important like mission for the the orgs you're in
2: this is something that I think about all the time is navigating um the like shift between like the benefits of the brewing industry being a family versus the the negatives of that right or the cons um, that can pop up. Um, but definitely like, definitely I'm thinking a lot about like the ways in which we just kind of, um, will like connect and build with, with each other. And, um, knowing that like, geez, Louise, I just lost my train of thought. Okay. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. I was going to talk about professionalism. This is, and I wanted to talk about this specifically because, um, because the Institute works, you know, primarily with college students and higher ed professionals. And we really need to, especially like, from that industry, um, talk about professionalism, right? So some of the ways that like, this is a benefit and both a con, right? In our industry is that like, there, there is a certain modality of being, right? And like a certain like sociability to how like, or certain sociabilities that are present in our community. Um, and it's not like a traditional corporate structure what like you learn in college right it's not it's not necessarily this like oh i'm going to read a linkedin article about negotiating a salary and like that's what's going to work here right like some not necessarily right like sometimes getting a job is is more like building a rapport right with like a certain team or a certain person and then you know finding time to say, Hey, if you have an opening, I'd love to come in or this and that. Right. And so in some ways, this is a benefit because we are able to, to communicate differently. Right. And this is like the creative part is, is I feel so like coming from like a professional work environment where it almost feels like, like when you put the khakis on and you put on the like you know, business cash stuff, you're also putting on a very specific like sociability, right? Like a way of being um, and interacting with people and managing your own feelings and this and that, right? Whereas in an industry like brewing or in the service industry in general, there's there's a more informal structure, right? Um, which allows for us to maybe call like call shit out the way that we want to call shit out, Um, on the flip side of that though, that also, you know, really lends itself to the, like the old boys club and that like communication is, is bad, not through any like ill intent, but just because communication is bad. Um, and also as a result, I think of rat magnet and, and the shift in this industry has been like a renegotiating of that lack of professionalism and wanting to hold on to that while we'll still also kind of trying to integrate these things that like help keep businesses um or help keep boundaries in place at a business um yes yeah, so that's where I I think there's a lot of creativity in our industry surrounding professionalism and the like theoretical lack thereof
3: and, and that also allows for a lot of creativity in how we can like actually make change and things that we can do to um, give footholding to the marginalized folks within the industries. Um, I mean, which on just the other week did like an ice cream social thing that just happened to be next to a brewery. So it was like beer and ice cream. And, and that's just like a fun social event and just to meet other people who are also like, interested in the same things as you are with like no strings attached. And that's one of the things like May and, our, May and I are trying to figure out of how like things we can do within the restaurant industries and the coffee shops. Like what are cool, unique things that we can do that not only are just like really cool, unique events, but can help give people a chance to get into the industries that they're trying to get into or, or excel further into that industry. Um, and so the nice thing of us being that small community is we can try these different things like the three of our organizations, uh, Deviant Minds with Trenton, Brewing Change Collaborative, we're coming together to like work together to create initiatives and resources that both leaders within the brewing industry and employees will be able to utilize, um, whether it's like, hiring practices or just straight up misogyny like how awful that has been in the industry and the stories that people have and um what they can do if they experience it cuz that's so in most small breweries hr is typically one of the owners or it's like someone's like third or fourth or fifth hat that they wear and so that all gets like put to the to the side and so like how do you deal with A business with that structure when possibly the person who you're feeling mistreated by is the HR person or best friends with the HR person you know it's how do you figure this out how do you weigh these waters and I think what we can do is more creative things where we can actually get to the employees and like this is how you deal with this call them out if you're too afraid we will take that reign for you and we will be like the ones that are gonna call out the people who are doing shit
4: <laughs> from the witch hunt end we try to make sure that like all of our collaboration brews with our partner breweries um either have a fun story behind like the recipe itself or create some sort of larger conversation um and so i mean <laughs> One of my favorite ones that we made, um, was last winter. Was this two winters ago? I don't even know the date anymore because of the pandemic, like relatively speaking, like a year and a half ago, at least. So they have an annual brew, um, that's like an overnight, like stout. And I can't remember the name of it right now, but we did a one-off of that and like got to Asian in barrels for a year, um, that were from Vikra and we called it, um, uh seeds of change oh the original the original beer is night witch which is after the uh russian bombers from world war ii who bombed the nazis and they were all women which is such a badass story but um the witch hunt beer was called seeds of change because um we infused the beer with uh hot peppers but then we also wanted to create a like conversation around like coming out of the pandemic holding all of our breweries accountable and this is honestly before um and slash rap magnet story and happened like our, the me too moment had not quite happened yet but it was like impeccable timing right beforehand um and so like which it, it's really hard to formulate way new ways at least to engage people into difficult conversations and regarding professionalism in the brewery workplace like it's such a challenge because like first of all like the inherent obvious misogyny, the inherent obvious racism that is present, but also like um, the if you if you're not an industry person or if you're maybe not super perceptive, um, most breweries have like functioning alcoholics there, <laughs> like it's just part of it, um, and so like navigating that is also pretty difficult, and um, it's a uh, it's like a constant challenge, but it's a very new and exciting moment for like all three of our organizations because we're finally coming together to like do one thing together so that's going to like have such a bigger radius of impact i think and i'm like super pumped for this um i don't know if i want to do we want to backtrack and unpack what we're keep referencing as the me too moment i'm not sure i can give a brief synopsis if we want okay Um, I don't remember the exact date, but uh, I want to say it's like March or April, um, a head brewer at Notch Brewing, um, out east at Connecticut, Massachusetts, one of the, those tiny Northeastern states. Um, her name is Brienne. She's the head brewer there. Um, pretty much just asked on her Instagram, which has like a decent amount of followers and now like a ridiculous amount more after all of this happened. Um, but she pretty much just put an open question up there and she was like, hey, other women, have you ever experienced misogyny in uh, while working in a brewery? And like, not kidding you, like thousands and thousands of stories flooded in, including my own and many of my friends. Um, and she just began sharing them. And like it kind of just exploded throughout craft beer and like people were defamed. Um, rightfully so most of the time, and uh, lost their jobs. It caused a lot of like major change in um, some like bigger craft breweries as well. Um, and so it was just like, it, it's a very good, the, the, the phrase to describe it is the craft brewing like me too moment, it really is. Um, and so like Brianne also started um, a collab brew that anybody can do and sign up for called Brave Noise, um, which is Uh, I don't remember the style, pretty sure it's an ale of some sort. I think it's a pale ale, Um, and so just pretty basic and everybody can do their own little iteration, but there is a public accountability aspect to it, where um, the brewery that is going to make brave noise has to um, publicly um, release their code of conduct for employees. Um, Which is like really powerful and important and like not enough people have signed up honestly because like people are scared of being held accountable. (laughs) So um, I'm doing my best to make sure that uh, DM gets it on the schedule pretty soon here, I hope, by the end of the month, we will do that so. Yeah, um, that's, the, that's the synopsis. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to derail the entire conversation, but we kept referencing it. And like, if people wanna know about these kinds of issues in the industry, they need to know what just happened um, and it's still happening, so yeah.
3: And the cool, one of the coolest thing about this collab is that there is that, uh, the, the part where you have to release your code of conduct. There's been a lot of like collab brews that's been happening uh, since the pandemic started, um, but none of them had any, like, specific things they had to do to be able to participate, um, so, like, that's a cool thing that, like, being in a craft brewery, like, you can be trying new things, like, this is a cool new way to do it, because with a lot of these other ones, um, there was a lot of issues of, people making the product but not donating what they were said to or supposed to donate and so um, this will hopefully get rid of those people who are just there to like try to make an extra buck Um, and this could actually create some really cool change.
2: Um, And honestly like I see this as like the forefront of like a workers rights issue and like who who better than the service industry, right, to, like, to champion true sustainable change, because, like, we're a hyper-localized industry by nature, and also, like, look at our collective power through this moment, right, of, I mean, ultimately, it was just consciousness raising um, that then resulted in, like, just a ripple effect of, like, people losing jobs, folks, like, committing to like finding um, HR professionals, right? And like like really committing to building that out, committing to building out um, inclusion statements or like or revamping them. Um, and so I don't know, like what, what a testament, right? To, to workers' rights and to collective power and to, to what I, I don't want any of us to ever underestimate the importance of craft beer which is so interesting because it is like, it's a, like a micro niche type of thing within the service industry. And yet um, I think we could take a lot of like what we're seeing now and what we're learning from and um, apply that to, to any other industry with with hopefully just as good results as I hope to see in our industry soon. So. Yeah, I don't know. I think that that is a really powerful thing that is not lost or should not be lost on on how we think about, like, folks entering into this industry and how we reflect.
0: I'm toying with, like, three thoughts at once, right? But what one of the things, right, is just like the one of the big themes, I think, throughout this entire conversation, especially with this, like, example, right, is just like how whether it's like these these you know collectives and these organizations or it's the breweries themselves right like what level of relationship these spaces or these gatherings of people have with like what is going on in like their immediate community right like i think that especially with like Minneapolis is such a necessary example or the twin cities, you know, broadly. Right. Just like, how do you not, right. Be in relationship with like some of the advocacy and activism work that's going on in Minneapolis. Like you have to, otherwise, like you are just by nature, like ignoring and being complicit and implicated, which is going to cause you like major issues down the line and then kind of creates you know, the cyclical shitstorm storm of just like, who feels comfortable coming in your spaces, which is a question that's been posed in this space, right? Like, how are you engaging? What are the optics? What, you know, who's going to call you out in some way down the line anyway, because you're not engaged in like, you're not in right relationship with the folks in the community, um, just by nature of just like, you just want to make you know, maybe you just want to make beer, which is fine, but like, how are you also like participating? How are you also like indicating that you were actively involved with like enhancing, you know, the, the, the area in which you're doing business, um, you know, I, I'm i reminded, like, back in May of this year, I, when I visited the Twin Cities, right, I went to a brewery, and they just happened to be doing, like, a vaccine, like, pop-up for folks to be able to come get vaccines, right, just, like, how are you engaging with, like, what is actively happening, you know, in the current moment that's not just about, like, creating, you know, a bar culture or creating a space, and I, I something that I was mindful of, I think, Kate, right, when you were talking about, like, folks, quote, quote, functioning alcoholics, right, or just folks with substance use disorder kind of engaging or participating either as consumers or as folks who are actively, like, creating the product um, is just wanting to, like, disclaim and be mindful that, like, what I'm hearing out of this is that this is not about, like, hyping up alcohol. This is not about hyping up, like, alcohol consumption, right? Like, everything we've talked about, I feel like has just happened to be centered around like beer and brewing and like the the item in which y'all are creating, but it's so much more about like community and being in right relationship with the folks that are engaging in the space and curating a space that is safe and affirming um, and like aesthetically pleasing and comfortable just so that folks like have a place to be that just so happens to be around, you know, something that ideally tastes good and has a cool name and a dope ass, logo right um so there's really no question in there just like that's what I'm like absorbing and I think that's so important just to name that like this is one version of just like this necessary reality of queer and trans folks and marginalized people in general just to kind of have to like carve space where it doesn't exist um and make space in ways that like are created based like on our own terms and then all of the cool shit that we're able to do and the important shit right of of things that we're able to do when we're not confined by um you know standard hierarchical structures of things certainly there's going to be hierarchy in some of these spaces right but just like breaking down all of these norms around professionalism and attire and like gender norms and just like, who's allowed to do this work. Um, I'm just fascinated and really hype about like all of it. So I don't know if this would be a really great time, like with the time we have, um, just to like do a round Robin of like, final thoughts and words of wisdom from y'all to bookend the rad conversation that we've had um this evening
3: so final thoughts i mean this has been really fun really amazing thanks for a having us on this has been really nice just kind of like talk through some of this stuff um and i'm, I'm really excited to see kind of where the industry both locally and globally kind of shifts um in a world where activism is almost like is more necessary or maybe not more necessary but more visible than it's ever been um and it seems like it's way more accessible too um which is great and so i'm really excited to see where it goes um words of wisdom are not things that ever come out of my mouth. So, um, I'm just going to pass on that one. (laughs) Sorry. Oh
2: my God. I love that. Um, no, set a boundary with us, Tyler, do it. Um, (laughs) Um, I don't know that I necessarily have any words of wisdom because I often feel like every day I am flying by the seat of my pants and anxiously checking my calendar every five minutes. but that being said is that like I don't know there are just so many different pathways and I think what is really coming through all of our narratives is like this core of like wanting to do good for other people in the ways that we can in the ways we have access to and so like if that's something that like someone is thinking about or or wanting to do like why not craft beer? Why not service in general? Um, why not here in Minneapolis? Um, you know, come here, please. Um, and that being said, that like every every industry is going to have its challenges and that these challenges are going to feel like Game of Thrones wall coming down, right? Um, I don't know, I can't continue the Game of Thrones metaphor, but like we make it through. And I like, this is maybe the first industry that I've ever been a part of where I fully believe that we can and are capable of making it through. And I'm excited to see what that looks like.
4: Oh man, I'm stuck between giving words of wisdom or making like really blatant, esoteric, sad statements about the industry. So I'm gonna try to not do that. And I'm sorry if I delve into like, I, would, I like something I really wanna say is like nepotism uh, creates a space that is like a toxic work environment for anybody who is not uh, in favor of the nepotism. So um, I don't know, try to be conscious of it in your own workplaces. It happens everywhere in every industry and it happens in every single brewery that I've ever heard of. Um, But like as somebody who didn't see herself uh, ever wearing steel to rubber boots uh, every day or wearing cargo pants uh, with a knife in my pocket and a flashlight in the other, uh i like i really didn't i really didn't see myself doing this but um if you see yourself doing it at some point or something like it like take a chance on yourself because the first brewing job i applied for i don't think i was qualified for so i highly suggest um combating your own um, imposter syndrome and like really marketing your aptitude if you're trying to get into especially the production side so I don't know. I know that was, (laughs) I know that was like really, um, geared towards other brewer interests, but like, it's very real. (laughs) Yeah. Something needs to be said about it. So.
2: And at the end of the day, it is just beer. Like we can do all of this work and we can get there. And also we can just like have a beer on our porch with our friends that tastes good and was made locally and yeah sometimes like that's the beauty of it. It doesn't always have to be so heady. We can also have a lot of joy that is just surface joy. Y'all
0: are awesome. This has been a amazing conversation. It makes me very motivated to come back down to the cities very soon because I've only had like a snippet of the a uh, spectrum of options available in in the Twin Cities. Um, I got sent home with some that I still have not tasted, may. Um, but uh, this has been really great, and I appreciate y'all very, very much for participating tonight. Our inbox is open for all of your insight, feedback, questions, boycotts, memes, and other. Forms of written correspondence. You can contact us at lastbite at sgdinstitute.org. This podcast is made possible by the labor and commitments of the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity staff. Particular shout out to Justin, Andy, and Nick for all of your support with editing, promotion, and production. Our amazing and queer as fuck cover art was designed by Adrian McCormick.